0: Upon the hearing and receiving of God's glorious gospel, God's glorious word, the Holy Spirit sears on our hearts a longing to be free from the imperfections of this world, of this realm, and instead be found in the perfection of the heavenly realm. Before us this morning as we move through our text in Colossians is a holy inspired text written through the hand of Paul, a text that paints a picture of a person who indeed longs. For heaven, and so for further examination of this text, I'm going to ask you, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter one, and I want to bring to you a message this morning that I have called "Heavenly Minded: Four Attitudes of Those Who Are Waiting Expectantly." And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. And just as I did last week. I want to read through verse 8, even though we will only look at a portion of this text just for the sake of repetition. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of the truth. The gospel that has come to you, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the spirit. You may be seated. Late in the 1600s, English poet and clergyman Thomas Ken had risen through the ranks to become chaplain to English royalty. But despite being placed in this role of prominence, it was ultimately a role of wrath or a place of wrath. First, as the chaplain to Princess Mary, the same one who would become Queen Mary later on, Ken would receive the wrath from her husband, William of Orange because he insisted that William's family maintain their promises and commitment of marriage, that those that they promised be married to another family indeed follow through with that. Later, he would receive the anger from Charles II, who was not only Mary's father, but the very man who appointed Thomas Ken to his role, to his position as chaplain within the royal family. At issue was Ken's commitment to biblical fidelity. That as Charles traveled, he wanted a room and a place for his mistress. And Ken would not oblige that because it did not fit with the terms of scripture. And just eight years later, he would be imprisoned by James II for not supporting what is known as a declaration of indulgences. Interestingly enough, this was a document meant to promote religious freedom. And Ken, after reviewing the document, said that he could not support it based on his own biblical convictions. And so, James II imprisoned him. Here he was, throwing a man into prison for practicing his religious convictions against a document meant to be able to pursue your religious convictions. But long before he drew the ire of kings and royalty... Thomas Kent already had a reputation of biblical conviction. His testimony was one as a man who was not only fixated on heaven himself, but as a man who was intentionally directing others to fixate themselves and fixate their gaze upon Christ in heaven who was seated at the right hand of God. Reflecting this heavenly orientation, Ken penned words from some hymns And he had written a number of hymns, but most notably what he is known for is writing ones that were meant to be as prayers, specifically one to be sung in the morning as a prayer, and then in the afternoon or the evening, and finally a midnight prayer. In the morning prayer, in the morning hymn, we get words like this. Direct control suggest. this day all I design or do or say, that all my powers with all their might All their might in thy soul glory may unite. From his hymn of night, in the evening he sings, Teach me to die, that so I may rise glorious at the judgment day. And here's the heavenly focus. When in the night I sleepless lie, my soul with heavenly thoughts supply. And if it wasn't enough to pray in the morning and the evening, Ken writes a midnight hymn. Eleven stanzas that include words like this. Give me a place at thy saint's feet, or some fallen angel's vacant seat. I'll strive to sing as loud as they, who sit above in brighter day. Few of us know those words today. I suspect most of us here have no idea what those words are from. But you sung a portion of those words this morning. Appended to the end of each of those three hymns. So at the end of the morning hymn, at the end of the night hymn, and at the end of the midnight hymn, it's the same closing verse, a triumphant adoration that proclaims Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The hymns left behind Ken speak of his transformation by God's truth. Conveying a man that was living in the present, living in the moment of his day, but a man that was also motivated by the future. Each word, each phrase of those prayers that he scribed is born out of faith, hope, and love in God. The impeccability of God's truth will have that kind of effect. So pure is God's message that it will indeed stir our hearts and our minds. Informed by the intellectual ascent of our minds and invigorated by the sentimental disposition of our hearts, the piercing nature of this truth will cause believers both to be exposed to who God is and also to expose themselves to God, like Thomas Kinn. The gospel message orients us towards God so that all that we say, all that we do, and all that we are are consumed by a desire to know him more. The believer, then, is the one who waits expectantly for heaven, anticipating that arrival because it inaugurates an eternity in the presence of God. And so, therefore, we become or should become heavenly-minded beings. A mindset that initiates a reaction in our lives. And so this morning I draw your attention to our text in Colossians, a text that announces four attitudes of those who expectantly await heaven. And I want you to note first the prayer of verse 3. A heavenly-minded person has an attitude of prayer. Paul writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, Paul's going to go on to confront false teaching. And yet he begins here not with the direct confrontation, but with an affirmation of who they are. There is something quite countercultural to this approach, writes Mark Johnston. He goes on to say the normal Christian response to people and situations where there are problems is to complain before we commend. But this is often how Paul starts his letters. He starts them with thanksgiving, and specifically thanksgiving for the people that he's writing to. Whether he's writing from prison, or writing to confront false teaching, or writing to condemn behavior, Paul's thankfulness both for the circumstances and the people is notable. Most every letter begins with an attitude of thankfulness. Even his letter to the Corinthians, which has some of the most severest rebukes and reprimands that we see in scripture, are still opening with thanksgiving. Specifically, he thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says. Notice the course of prayer in our text. As Paul directs his prayer towards God, the heavenly-minded person will direct his or her prayers towards heaven. Like Paul, we exercise our faith by praying to God. Because every good gift, then, is from God the Father, as James tells us in 1.7, prayers of thankfulness, then, should also be directed to God the Father. Notice also here, though, one of the greatest transitions in, in the Old Testament, or between the Old Testament and to the New Testament. It's made apparent in our text. That God the, was the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, this phrase is repeated. But now, in our text here, he's known as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the father of Abraham, God promises to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed or through his descendants. And centuries later now, on this side of the life of Christ, we see that God has fulfilled that promise through Jesus Christ. To make that even more personal, Paul refers to Christ here as our Lord, our Christ. Pointing to the fact that Christ is over any of those that choose to follow him. Something we talked about two weeks ago when we addressed the faithfulness of the church in Colossae, who was at Colossae but in Christ. So not only did God bless all nations through Abraham, But he demonstrates that the exhaustiveness of the gospel, the completeness of it, that it's open to all nations, not merely just Israel. This title, the the description, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrates the reliability of God. It shows that he will indeed fulfill the promises that he makes. Even if there are great lapses of time in between, in this case centuries, he made a promise here and still is willing to complete it here. If prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God, then it is necessary to know that God is dependable. If God could not be trusted, we would have no reason to pray to him. But as the Father of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, he has demonstrated both his willingness to make promises and his ability to fulfill those promises. The prayer of the Christian, then, or of a Christian, is not directed towards any arbitrary being, but is towards a faithful God who grants grace and peace to those who follow him, just as we learned last week. The course, or the direction of the prayer, I would say, then dictates the character of the prayer. In obedience to Christ's instructions in Luke 18.1, Paul is continuously praying, or without ceasing, as he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He follows his own advice here by having a lifestyle of prayer. We know that Paul was a man of prayer. And in this case, he uses a hyperbole, that word always, to indicate the state of his prayer life, especially as it relates specifically to his relationship with the Colossians. As their brother in Christ, Paul maintains an active prayer life by praying for them to their mutual father. I know this was a long time ago, but if you remember our message back on September 5th, we examined Romans chapter 1, and there we saw that Paul was a man of fervent prayer, that when Paul prays, he does so with intensity and with passion. The model of prayer left behind for him by him for any believer is not one of mediocrity it is one of earnest energy and ultimately is born out of the conviction that he is praying to God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and thus he is praying to the dependable God the one who hears the prayers and the one who will respond to prayer most importantly Moving from the character of the prayer I want you to pay attention to the content of his prayer here. Later on in verse 9 he will pray for their spiritual life. But in this case he begins with an attitude of thankfulness, giving thanks to God. Ephesians 5:20 Paul writes to believers to give thanks to God for everything, responding to the blessings for the work in God's God's work in their lives. Paul simply exemplifies this principle to give thanks. And he's giving thanks to God for the work that he is doing in and through the lives of the Colossians. Remember that the motivation of this letter is to confront, specifically, specifically confronting the false teaching that's infiltrating the church. So this is not a casual letter of friendship. Paul's writing intentionally, and he's writing a letter of correction and confrontation. But despite those problems, Paul still lifts them up in prayer. He gives thanks for who they are. Prayer, or or lack of prayer, you could say, is not used as a tool of punishment against those with whom we disagree or he disagrees, but rather having been united by the same spiritual father, the living God, Paul prays fervently for them. And he prays genuinely for them. We get the impression that Paul doesn't mean this flippantly, but that he is laboring intensely and intentionally for them. As we look at the concept of giving thanks, this phrase, give thanks, in our text, is based on the words, the same words, for for grace, goodness, and joy. And the way one commentator summarizes it, he says, giving thanks is this giving thanks is to joyfully celebrate God's goodness and grace in one's life. The heavenly minded Christian is the one who gives thanks to God for others, rejoicing with believers as God's goodness is displayed in their lives. The believer is not jealous, asking, Why not me, Lord? Why did I not receive that blessing? He or she is not feeling entitled to God's grace or God's goodness, and neither does a heavenly-minded Christian respond in anger or harshness over disagreements. Instead, he responds in prayer by thanking God for his work in the lives of others. It's interesting that after denying Jesus Christ for so long, to pray to God the Father of Jesus Christ represents a great transformation in the life of Paul. If we want to examine the status of our own spiritual lives, then we only need to examine the status of our prayer lives. I want you to note a second. A heavenly-minded person has an attitude of faith in the first part of verse 4. The Word of God reads, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that in this case, Paul's words or Paul's prayers Is a a response to their testimony? We could write the verse this way. Because we have heard of your faith, we thank God for you. Clearly, Paul has no direct knowledge of them or what's going on. But what he does know is the testimony of their faith. And their testimony is a positive one. They have placed their faith in Christ. And their lives testify or give evidence to that very faith. Most of us likely know the the words of Hebrews 11.1 that tell us now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is from this verse that Christians derive their very definition of faith, referring to trusting something that is not necessarily known. In defining faith, the absence of sight does not mean the absence of sense, though. Faith is not an unreasonable, unreasonable belief in anything and everything. Faith is a rational conclusion based on a reasonable assessment of what is known. The author of Hebrews gives us an example just a few verses later in verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. None of us were ever present at creation. And yet we trust that this happened just as the word says, that God created all things from nothing. Why would we trust that to be true if we've not been able to verify that with our own eyes? Because scripture tells us that this is how, it was, how creation occurred. Scripture tells us this is the truth. And our experience with Scripture is that Scripture is reliable. It is a faithful testimony, and it is accurate in all things. And so, what we have is a reasonable assessment of what Scripture is and the character, and therefore, we can trust this statement. We have faith that this is true because a rational analysis leads us to a logical conclusion. This is faith, assurance of things in the future even though we may not currently see it because we trust the Lord who is faithful and we trust that his word is reliable. Thomas Adams, another noted English preacher of the 1600s, shares, It is the office of faith to believe what we do not see and it shall be the reward to see what we do believe. That same sentiment was echoed by Augustine a few centuries earlier. Both men capture a unique aspect of trusting God. That while we may not be able to see or understand, we have faith of its reality. And then later that reality is proven true. We trust in this case that eternity awaits those of us who have trusted in the Lord's work. Having faith that one day we will see who he is. And I suspect we will indeed see that to be true. It will be proven correct. The more you trust him, the more you know you can trust him. But faith is only as reliable as the object of our faith. A person may place his or her faith and trust in whomever or whatever that person desires. But unless faith is placed in a reasonable object, then that faith is unreasonable. Paul doesn't just commend the Colossians for their faith, but he commends them here for their faith in Christ. Once again, we see that phrase, in Christ. The object of Christian faith, in is our Lord Jesus Christ. The entirety of the Christian faith is anchored not in who we are, but in who Christ is. To place faith in anything else, anything other than Christ, is an irrational faith. Because only Christ has proven himself faithful. Only Christ has proven himself capable. And only Christ has proven himself reliable. Rarely does scripture highlight the amount of faith a person has. And usually when we do see it that it's mentioned, it's always compared to some minuscule amount, like a mustard seed. Far more important than the amount of faith is the object of the faith. We are not redeemed by the measure of our faith but the Christ of our faith. We're not justified by the magnitude of our faith, but by the Christ of our faith. And we are not sanctified by the mass of our faith, but by the Christ of our faith. Faith then is trusting in something after being persuaded that it is indeed true. It may be visionless, but it's not unseen. Faith is not blindly trusting in anything or anyone but as purposefully relying on that which is proven reliable. Consider the magnitude of Galatians 5, 5 through 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Notice something important about faith then. Rather than compelling a love out of obligation, faith initiates a work out of love. And the difference between the two is striking because one is forced labor to earn salvation and the other is a voluntary response to show appreciation for salvation. I want to share a lengthy quote from Horatio Bonar. Sharing these words, he says, Faith is rest not toil it is isn't giving up all the former weary efforts to do or feel something good in order to induce god to love and pardon instead it is the calm reception of the truth so long rejected that god is not waiting for any such inducements but loves and pardons of his own goodwill and is showing that goodwill to any sinner who will come to him on such footing Casting away his own poor performances or goodnesses and relying implicitly upon the free love of him who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A heavenly minded person has an attitude of faith. A second part of verse four reads, we heard also of the love that you have for all the saints. I want you to note third then, The love of a believer. A heavenly-minded person will have an attitude of love. The mark of the Christian is a mark of sacrificial love, not selfish love. The order of faith and love in this text seems to be very intentional, that Paul mentions faith first and then love second, because the love a person has flows directly from the faith a person has. It is true that our salvation is not dependent upon the amount of faith we have. I've already said that. But neither are we out of line to say that the love coming from our life is directly proportional to the faith in our life. The verses we just read in Galatians 5, 5 through 6 affirm that there is a direct relationship between the two, establishing that love affirms the genuineness of somebody's faith. James asks the question in two fourteen, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? John states it more firmly. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Love's not only a defining mark of the Christian life, establishing who we are, defining who we are, but is also a distinguishing mark. Mark of the Christian life, because it differentiates us from the secular world. Love, not tolerance, identifies a believer of Christ. Love, not resilience, identifies a follower of Christ. And love, not resistance, identifies the proclaimer of Christ. For Paul, the precise standard of love is a self-sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be overcome by this testimony in 2 Corinthians 5. When Paul declares, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The sacrifice of Christ for the love of others persuades the sacrifice of self. For the love of Christ, our love should drive others to Christ. I'm thankful for the perspective of Nancy Lee Damas Wolgemuth when she says, "It's bad enough for me to make choices that hurt my own relationship with God. How much more serious is it to be the cause of someone else deciding to sin?" Not only must I choose the pathway of holiness for God's sake and for my own sake, but out of love, I must do it for the sake of others. One of the notable features of this verse in Colossians is the aim of the believer's love. At all times, our love indeed is directed towards all, towards those that surround us. But in this text right here, What it says is that Paul is commending the Colossians specifically for their love towards fellow believers, to the saints. For three weeks, we've covered the topic of faithfulness out of verses one and two. And if we think back to the activity of faithfulness within the church, we discuss the call for each individual to exercise faithfulness for the sake of the corporate body. We exercise faithfulness for the glory of God and for the benefit of the body of Christ. And so what I would tell you then is faithfulness is an expression of our love. If love is also sacrificial, one of the greatest sacrifices we will be called upon to make is to sacrifice our own interest. Love causes us to desire what is in the best interest of others even if it means sacrificing that which we hold is important or a passion that we have within our own life. Christian love is not determined by how much we are loved by others, but by how much we are loved by Christ. Read with me Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Never was Christ so ashamed of us that he failed to lavish his love on us. At our worst point, filled with ongoing unrighteousness in our lives, Christ continues to love sacrificially. And such is a picture and example of love of the Christian life. If Christ was not ashamed of, to love us, we cannot be ashamed to love one another. Finally, I want you to know the notice the hope in verse five. Reading because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, every heavenly-minded person has an attitude. Of hope. With this verse, Paul completes the triad that is so well known in his writings faith, hope, and love. This time he focuses on hope. To quote Theodore of Sire, we already see heaven with the eyes of faith, even as we prepare for it in the present with an eager spirit. That is what we hope for in our text. The structure of this verse is interesting because it's showing that the faith and love of the previous parts are dependent upon the hope. Paul has heard of their love and their faith, the love and the faith that Colossians are displaying to everyone around them. But both of those are a result of the hope. Because they hope in heaven, they love others and have faith now. But hope is derived by something in the future. We hope for something that's going to happen. It will not be until it's fully realized, until somebody experiences heaven, that hope then is fully materialized. But the impact of hope is lived out now. So it's motivating believers to live a life of faith and love. So we hope for something in the future, but it impacts how we live now. The hope is not a subjective experience. It's an objective reality. We don't hope simply because we desire something to happen or that we expect it might happen. The believer has hope because of the knowledge that God fulfills his promises. So those promises are reality that will fully happen and fully (coughs) materialize in the future. One commentator notes there are four features of hope First, hope is definite. Because hope is fixated upon the unchangeable God and his promises, therefore, are unchangeable, our hope should also be unchangeable, that it's based on a certainty of a future. Second, it says hope is stored or laid up, as the ESV notes. And so it's telling us that there is an inheritance in this future, that to be received in the future... We will hope for that. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Paul also notes that it, that it is stored up for the Colossians, saying, for you, for them. The inheritance then is given specifically to those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, it is in heaven. The inheritance is not dispersed now to those who are existing in this moment. It will be given in the future. So again hope is derived from our future in heaven as we anticipate the future anticipating the perfect reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in the grand examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 the author of Hebrews writes that those who hope in heaven they desire a better country a heavenly one it says in Hebrews 11:16 mm-hmm. Hebrews 13:14 indicates that there's no lasting city here on earth Instead, we seek the city that is to come. Matthew 6, 20. Christ urges his followers to store up treasures not on earth, but in heaven. And in our scripture reading this morning in Philippians 3, 12 through 21, we note that Paul's living motivation and his transformation in those verses that took place. But he ends in verse 20, noting something very important. That our citizenship is in heaven it's not here it's not now our citizenship is in heaven and then he says something else even more important that it is heaven that is a dwelling place of our savior who we are is determined by who we seek to be in heaven because we await this grand future we never grow comfortable with our position here but we seek our place in eternity in the presence of christ the psalmist declares mightily in Psalm seventy-three twenty-four through twenty-six. Again, we read this this morning. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Hope causes us to seek God more. It is a desire to know him, to rely upon him, and to allow him to be our strength. We encounter the world in which we live because we have hope in the world in which we will be in. To hope in the security of this future allows us to endure trials and tribulations and sufferings that make up this world. Consider the description of Moses. In Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 24, the word of God reads, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Even in the Old Testament, we are told, Moses awaited the Messiah, the Christ. And that was the motivation that allowed him to endure mistreatment, to flee from sin, and to seek to enjoy God. This wasn't planned, but allow me to give you an example. On Friday, October 8th, marked the 20th anniversary of the release of the song In Christ Alone, the one we sang this morning. You may not realize it, but that song has been very instrumental and very influential to the culture of Christian worship and Christian music because it sparked this new movement of hymns concerned about the trajectory of both Christian music and Christian people. The author, Stuart Townen sought to write a song that would instill theological conviction into the singing, while also honoring God with a great hymn of praise. This beautiful hymn has become a defining song to the direction of Christian music and hymn writing in particular for this era. But when he wrote it, he was facing some difficulty, and he had most of the words already put together. But Stuart Townend sought the the help of Keith Getty And together they labored even more. And while the majority of the song indeed was written, it was Getty who came up with this opening phrase, In Christ alone my hope is found. Townend remarks that once they got that opening phrase figured out, it set the tone for the entire song. How fitting it is that the direction of that song was determined by the very phrase and concept that determines the direction of our lives. In Christ alone, my hope is found. The truth of God's message initiates a life transformation, instilling into us four attitudes, calling believers to a life of prayer, a life of faith, a life of hope, and a life of love. Ultimately, where we place our hope will determine the direction of our lives. A hope in Christ will lead to faith in Christ, generate a love for Christ and his people, and call on us to express that hope, ultimately in prayer to him and dependence. Such a hope develops a commitment to Christ, leading us to commend our lives into his hands, serving him, refusing to engage in anything that is not honoring to him. Let me close with this. I just told you that phrase, in Christ alone my hope is found, set the tone for that entire song. But here's another example. As they sought to distribute that song, both Towne and Getty and Getty submitted the song to the Presbyterian Church for inclusion into their hymnal, and it had to go through a committee to be reviewed and approved. The committee to approve that came back and said they indeed would include that hymn into their hymnal, if they would make one change. In the second stanza, we sang this morning, till on that cross has Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Their desire was to change that to till on that cross, the love of God was magnified. Town and Getty refused. They did not capitulate on this point, as evidenced by the fact of what we sang this morning. It wasn't that it was untrue. Instead, it was they were more convinced that this phrase was more important because it led from the very idea of what it meant to hope in Christ. It helps us to understand that I deserve God's wrath, but it was satisfied by Christ's work on that cross, and therefore, my hope is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father God, we have this great and glorious gospel given to us by you, by your will, by your work. By the work of your Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. By his death, by his burial, by his resurrection. Indeed, we can have a life of faith, hope, and love. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you continue to instill that into us. That as we look at at the cross, as we look at the gospel, as we look at the resurrection, that we don't stop there. That we don't look to you only at that moment of salvation. But Father, that we would look to you for the whole life of sanctification. That upon being saved and in that moment of receiving your grace, Lord, may we continue to receive your grace throughout the rest of our physical earthly lives. May you instill into us a a faith that is deep, one that is rooted and grounded in you, Lord. Help us to trust you more in every situation that we face because, indeed, you are the reliable God, able to do as your will pleases. Father, help that faith to motivate our love. May we come before you in in loving praise and adoration, falling in love with you more and more. And may that compel, may that direct or help us to love one another more. That we may show and glorify you. And finally, Lord, may our hope be in heaven. May we await a future and eternity. As Thomas Ken said, teach us to die teach us to die to ourselves first and foremost as we read in your word, but also to prepare for that future that awaits. And what a glorious day it will be. What a wonderful moment and what a joy that we can experience a life in your presence, Lord. So Father, we just commit this time to you. May your spirit work in our hearts the rest of this day. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.